0: Welcome to our latest episode of Take Back Our Schools. I am Andrew Gutman, your host today. Our normal co-host, Bethany Mandel, is once again not with us, so you are stuck just with me, but we do have a terrific guest joining us today, Corey DeAngelis. Corey is the National Director of Research at the American Federation for Children, the Executive Director at Educational Freedom Institute, an Adjunct Scholar at the Cato Institute, and a Senior Fellow at Reason Foundation. Busy guy. He was named on the Forbes 30 under 30 list for his work on education policy and received the Buckley Award from America's Future in 2020. He additionally received the Future 40 Award from Maverick Pack in 2021. Corey has authored or co-authored over 40 journal articles, book chapters, and reports on education policy. He is the co-editor of School Choice Myths, setting the record straight on education freedom. His research has been published in peer-reviewed academic journals, including Social Science Quarterly, School Effectiveness and School Improvement, Educational Review, and Peabody Journal of Education. He is a regular on Fox News, and his work has also been published in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, the New York Post, and National Review. Corey received his PhD in education policy from the University of Arkansas, and he holds a BBA and MA in economics from the University of Texas at San Antonio. So thank you so much for joining us on Take Back Our
1: Schools. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So let's start, if you don't mind, with sort of the the, the big the big topic. What exactly is educational freedom?
1: Yeah, I, I mean I haven't really talked about this in terms of school choice as much as I used to. I now frame the conversation as funding students as opposed to systems. And that's the the best way to ensure that parents have freedom with their children's education, to have the funding that's meant for their child's education to follow them to wherever they want their kid to receive that education. That could be the government run school. Uh, If that's the best option, you can keep that option. But if not, for whatever reason, families would be able to take their kids' education dollars to a private school, a homeschool type setting, like a micro school or pandemic pod or any other approved education provider. And the best way to do this is something called an education savings account. Again, the money that would have followed you to the government school, you can still take it there. If not, the money would follow the child into a parent-directed or family-directed education savings account, uh, uh, which can be used for all of these other approved education right. providers.
0: Is this something that parents want? I mean, is, it, is this you know, nationwide something that, that is you know, popular that parents are asking for?
1: Yeah, totally. And we've seen a surge in support since uh, the coronavirus pandemic and the closure of schools and families getting to see what was happening in the classroom with this remote learning, which I don't really like to call remote learning, even though the media loves to repeat that phrase. It's more like remotely learning learning. Uh, the way that it was uh, implemented over the past couple of years just was was not a really great setup for so many kids on Zoom school led to a lot of learning loss actually. So it's more like remote instruction, or if we want to be real, it was just a closure of schools for far right. too many kids. And nationwide polling, the latest that I've seen from Real Clear Opinion Research has found an eight percentage point surge in support of what most people call school choice, or what I call funding students directly from 64% support in April of 2020 at the beginning of all this mess to about 72% support of uh, among Americans nationwide uh, in February of 2022. And the biggest jumps in support were actually among Democrats. And we now have super majority support among Democrats, independents and Republicans. And then one more thing is that uh, it's not just polling numbers that we've seen shift, it's also real changes on the ground. One, parents voting with their feet, charter school enrollment over the pandemic period, increased by 7.1%, whereas the government-run schools lost uh, 3% of their enrollment. About 1.5 million kids left government-run schools nationwide. Homeschooling has at least doubled, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, over the pandemic period. And the, the number of states with school choice victories in 2021, is about 19 states enacted or expanded programs in 2021. We're calling 2021 the year that that we fund students, not systems, or most people just call it the year of school choice. So we're seeing a lot of momentum in the right direction. Great.
0: So I, a number of questions I want to follow up on that. I was going to ask you about sort of the red-blue divide on this. And you sort of articulated that we're seeing you know, parents in blue states. And I see that here in, in, in the New York area where people who you know call themselves lifelong Democrats Bernie Sanders supporters are now furious over school closures and you know what the politicization of what has you know gone on in public schools. Is there, let's start with this. Is there hope in blue states for these kind of issues of funding the kid, not funding the public schools? Or is this really just a red state initiative?
1: Yeah, mo- most of the victories in 2021 were in red states. That's that's true, but not all of the victories. So for example, Um, uh, Maryland had an expansion of their existing uh, voucher program called the Boost Scholarship Program. Uh, They expanded the funding of that initiative in 2021. Illinois, another blue state, has a tax credit scholarship program. It's not kind of an indirect way for the money to follow the child where people donate to a scholarship granting organization and those people and uh, uh, organizations get a tax benefit for donating to those organizations, but then other lower income families can go to these scholarship granting organizations to receive the scholarships to go to a elementary secondary or or secondary school um, uh, in Illinois. And that state didn't have an expansion, but they that the program was supposed to be sunsetted out and they uh, saved the program in 2021. So there's a couple of blue state victories in 2021 when it came to school choice. And in California, for example, although it's you know difficult to, to see a path forward for it to pass through the legislature, um, they're trying to put it onto the ballot in California to put it to the voters. Uh, one issue there, though, is that the attorney general handed down language that was pretty biased against school choice instead of just calling it school choice or allowing the money to follow the child to a public or private school. Uh, the, the language and the title of the, the proposed initiative is something along the lines of the that uh, the the, the uh, required subsidization of religious institutions, um, right. which which okay. is pretty biased against it. So we'll we'll see how it turns out in California. But. And the, the reason why they think that that's a, a, a better way forward in a deep blue state is because although a majority of Democrats on the ground, as far as constituents support the funding following the child, there becomes a, a very tough issue for Democratic elected officials um, who, who have to weigh those uh, views from their constituents with the views of special interests who disproportionately donate to their campaigns. And if you look at Randy Weingarten's Union, the American Federation of Teachers, for example, you can go onto a website called Open Secrets and you can look at where these organizations send their their political contributions. And every single campaign cycle since 1990, over the past three decades, over 97% of the political contributions from AFT, Randy Weingarten's Union, have gone to Democrats as opposed to Republicans or independents. So it it puts the Democrats in office in a tough position, but I do believe that's going to shift going forward, especially if Republicans lean into educational freedom, like we saw in Virginia, you had Terry McAuliffe saying, I don't think parents should be telling schools that they should teach that awakened a new special interest group, which happens to be these parents who want more of a say in their kids education. And so if you can just get candidates to just talk about education, freedom, school choice, parental rights in education, it's going to become more and more politically detrimental to oppose parental rights in education. So I think that's the path forward uh, with this new special interest group, parents uh, pushing back against elected officials.
0: So I don't know if you're knowledgeable enough, but in Virginia, is there now with Glenn Young being governor, is there more of a push towards educational choice in Virginia?
1: Yeah. Yes. And um, so before the elections, you had a, tri- a Democrat trifecta in Virginia. The state went, you know, 12 percent, 10 percentage points to Biden. Glenn Youngkin ended up uh, winning by two percentage points. It swung 12 percentage points towards Republicans. And the Republicans took the House, actually. They have a two seat majority in the Virginia House, but the Senate is still held by Democrats. We did see some movement this year in 2022, where the Republicans actually passed through the House uh, with all Republicans on board and all Democrats in opposition, 5248, an education savings account program, which is the purest form, as I talked about earlier, of funding students as opposed to systems. It allows families to have a maximum amount of customization and choice. And, and it allows the money to follow the child to wherever they get an education. Uh, but it did not succeed in the Senate. It was almost guaranteed to be doomed when when it was um, assigned to the Education Committee in the Senate. Although we, you know, had theorized maybe we could get a couple of the Democrats on board because Democrats sometimes do vote for school choice. It's not that they uh, always unanimously vote in opposition. But the committee was a was stacked. I believe nine nine Democrats, six Republicans. Okay. Uh, we didn't think it it it, it didn't happen. Three, three, three uh, Democrats didn't switch, so it's uh, dead there. But you know uh, things can change uh, after this November in Virginia, and we might see an education savings account program push. I'm I'm, I'm fairly certain Glenn Youngkin would sign such a, a program. He had, he had he had said so. He had said that he has supported ESAs before on the radio, on local radio in, in the D.C. area. I heard him talk about that before. And uh, actually, Terry McAuliffe, who ran against Glenn Youngkin, he vetoed a couple of these education savings account bills before. So it, it can happen. And, and Virginia was one of the states that was advancing this policy uh, even before COVID. So. Let's talk about
0: the opposition to this a little bit. You I mean, you mentioned obviously the teachers unions are vehemently opposed for sort of the obvious reasons they don't want to lose their monopoly power. They don't want to lose what are their yeah. you know, what are their stated objections?
1: Yeah, so I have a, a co-edited volume with Cato Institute's Neil McCluskey called School Choice Myths: Setting the Record Straight on Education Freedom. And we knocked down the 12 biggest myths in the debate with some outside authors who help us out as well. Um, although there's there's you know, about a dozen or so that they repeat each and every year, everybody remembers the one that they repeat most often. Anytime there's any proposal to have the funding follow the child, they'll say that, oh no, we can't do this because this is going to either destroy or defund the public schools. And there's a lot of responses to that. My my knee-jerk response is that, uh, you know, the money doesn't belong to the government schools in the first place. So allowing families to choose their grocery store doesn't defund Walmart, doesn't steal money from Walmart because the money doesn't belong to Walmart even if you're using a taxpayer funded initiative like food stamps, for example. And if someone would ever try to make that argument, we'd all say that they were ridiculous. Uh, So school choice doesn't defund public schools. If anything, public schools defund families and school choice initiatives just return the money to the hands of the rightful owners or at least the intended beneficiaries of that funding, the parents and their and their and the children. And my second response is what usually gets me blocked on Twitter by union accounts is that I'll just ask them a rhetorical question. I'll say, hey. Why would that happen? Why would giving families a choice defund government-run schools? And they'll just block me because they can only respond to that in two ways. One, they'll say, well, it's because families are going to choose other schools. And then it's like, okay, yeah, you're making my point for me. Uh, that's, That's an argument to allow them to choose something that they want. You're admitting that you understand that millions of families aren't happy with what they're getting in the traditional system. You're arguing we should force them to stay put. And it, it disproportionately falls on low-income families who can't afford to spend money out of pocket to pay for private school tuition and fees, and so uh, which this this leads to inequities as well by by forcing the least advantaged to stay in the lower quality government-run schools. Uh, and then my my last response is: look, with these proposals, typically only half of the funding the total funding follows the child is typically the state portion of, of, of the funding, which happens to be about half. Mathematically, the government run schools end up with more money on a per pupil basis. If you keep half the money and you keep and you lose the student per child, you have higher revenues and expenditures. And I mean, just imagine if you left Walmart and started shopping at Trader Joe's and Walmart got to keep half of your grocery bill each week even after you weren't even they weren't providing you with services. That would be a good deal for Walmart. And I would argue that school choice is similarly a good deal for the public schools as well, that they get to keep any money at all for students they're no longer educating. That's interesting. I didn't
0: realize that. So let's talk about funding for a minute. So yeah. I, I'm gonna guess I'm the average nationwide Public school spend somewhere between what, like fifteen dollars to $20,000 per student, yeah. obviously much higher in, in like New York City. I know it's thirty or something thousand. Is that, yeah, is so, that about
1: right? So, before the pandemic uh, infusion of CAS with, with this COVID relief that a lot in a lot of places wasn't even uh, used for COVID funding, it was just things that they wanted to do all along. Uh, the US Census Bureau and the National Center for Education Statistics pegs the number at about fourteen dollars to $16,000 per student per year, but that's pre-pandemic numbers. That's from about 2018, okay. 2019. So now if you, you you do a quick estimate with the COVID relief, it's probably about three or four, that is probably about uh, 18, 17 to, to $19,000 per student per year, uh, but we don't have updated numbers. And this number has substantially increased over time. Each and every decade, even after adjusting for inflation, per pupil education expenditures have gone up. Since 1960, for example, we've increased uh, government school funding per student by about 287% after adjusting for inflation nationwide. Uh, So we throw more and more money at the problem, but the problem itself is that- But achievement keeps going down, right? Yeah, so achievement's either, either the same or worse in some places and we put more money into the system, but the system is the problem, it's not the funding. It's that the monopoly doesn't have any particularly strong incentives to allocate those resources efficiently. And so it doesn't make its way into the classroom, it makes its way towards administrative bloat and staffing surges. And so it doesn't even go towards uh, higher teacher salaries in a lot of cases. I mean, Ben Scafidi from Kennesaw State University did a study on this, and he found he looked at the period between 1992 and 2014, found that teacher salaries actually dropped by 2% over that period, even though inflation adjusted per pupil expenditures increased by 27%. So it's going towards uh, these superintendents and administrators in the system. Uh, but the, and, and it's not really very helpful for the individual teachers in the system, but it's good for Rand, Randy Weingarten and other union bosses because that means more dues-paying members. That's why even with the COVID relief, I mean, look at Los Angeles public schools—they lost about six or seven percent of their customers or their students, and they're planning, according to district officials, one to increase per-pupil education expenditures by about sixty-nine percent over the last couple of years, while. Calling to increase the number of teachers in the system by eight percent, the number of custodial workers by twenty-five percent, and the number of psychological slash uh, uh, social workers by eighty percent. And what other industry do you
0: lose? That's our infusion of SEL. Yeah, stuff, all,
1: <laughs> I, I'm guessing so. But in what, okay. what what other industry do you lose? Seven percent of your customer base, and you hire more people, and and and. and Unless you have a government monopoly where you get the funding regardless of how well you do. And and in a lot of places, like in California, regardless of whether they even open their doors for business over the past couple of years. So,
0: okay, school spend pre-COVID $14,000, $16,000 nationwide per student, now higher, closer to 18, 19, 20. You're saying that under these programs, these educational choice, school choice, fund the kid programs, parents get about half that.
1: Typically, yes. Is
0: that about the, what can they? Is that enough for an alternative? Yeah. Uh, it, whether it's it, homeschooling it, or private schooling, is does that really work for families?
1: Yeah, in a lot of cases, it does. I mean, if you look nationwide on the average, uh, private school tuition and fees in 2022 is about. Eleven or $12,000 per student, but that's just an average. There's obviously the really expensive private schools for $60,000 per kid per year, but then there's also more affordable options at the same time. So if you have half of the let's say $16,000, even you have $8,000, you're you're at a, in a lot better position than you were before not having any funding at all and essentially having to pay twice, once through the property tax system and then once again, again out of pocket. And again, who's the most likely to be able to afford private schools in the current system? It's at least more likely to be the more advantaged families that can do so already. So you give $8,000 to a family, they'll be able to either come up with the difference by pre- applying for private scholarships Or uh, looking for a lower cost private option. And then also supply is not fixed. If you start, if the demand is there, you start giving families the money, you'll see more lower cost options popping up as well, uh, entering the market. And look, it doesn't have to be a brick and mortar private school with these ESA options. You can spend the money on like micro schools where you don't have to build a new new school building. You can do these. It's essentially economizing on the process of homeschooling where you get five to ten children together in a household, have eight to ten thousand dollars follow each child. You'll have people entering that market as well, which it already started. with, with the pandemic. And even before the pandemic, we already had micro schools and pandemic. Right. Now we have pandemic pods. Um, so there's, and let's say, let's say average tuition was much high. Let's just imagine it was much higher than 8,000. Let's say it was 10 or 12 or 14, uh, $15,000. Um, the, the argument I hear from the other side is they'll say, this isn't enough money. Um, you know, uh, so we, we should we should fight against it because it's not enough money and, and it's not really giving people more options. One, I'll say there actually are a lot of affordable options. But my other response is I'll ask them if they would be against Pell Grants for higher education just because they don't cover the full costs of attending Harvard University. They'll say, no, I, I'll still support Pell Grants because I know that Every little bit helps. And even if it's not the full amount, we should still help people to the best extent that we can. My other rhetorical question is I'll say, well, um, this is only half the funding. And we do this to get this done politically and to get the bill passed. Would you support an amendment to the bill that would allow the total amount of funding to follow the child? Not 8,000, but 16,000. And then they'll say, well, no, because that's stealing money from public schools. And it's like, okay, well, you should have just started out with that argument. I knew that was your argument all along. Don't get into this whole, oh, this isn't really enough money because I know that's not where where you're really coming from. But uh, using these types of rhetorical questions can expose the people who just want to protect the establishment.
0: Right. So one, what one pushback that I'm sort of sympathetic to on this uh, that I hear, and 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 partly from from the right, private schools have gone very well, especially elite private schools. That's sort of my. Background is uh, that $60,000 a year fancy private school in New York City that, that have all gone very, very woke. And so the question is, okay, what are really the choices out there? So you mentioned, obviously, homeschooling is a choice. If you can put together a micro school or a co-op or a pod, that is the choice. But, it, but a lot of the private schools are not really a choice. Now, they may have been open during covid although from a restriction perspective, they went much further in a lot of cases than even the public schools did. My daughter's former school was double masked, you know, which they never had to be. Um, So so the question is, you know, is school choice really the panacea that, that people like you were saying it is, if a lot of what you think of as choice, meaning let's say private schools, aren't really a good choice?
1: It's not a perfect solution, but it's the best solution that we have available. And look, Again, like I said earlier, supply is not fixed. We have this small, you know, this amount of private schools that exist today that may have, there may be a large subset of them that are ultra woke or however we want to describe them. But if you give individual families the funding directly, you'll have more conservative options probably pop up. And uh, I don't care if a liberal wants to send their kid to an ultra woke private school, that's their right to do so. Right. But the problem that I see is that currently we force millions of families to send their kids education dollars to these institutions that um, where they feel like their kids are being brainwashed and or yeah. or indoctrinated in the government-run schools. That's the problem I see. I don't, I don't really have a take on what the curriculum should look like. What I want is that each individual family should be able to send their kid to a school that's aligned with their values. So that you know the supply will look different than it looks now, and I think that would also provide. A, an incentive for the public schools to focus more on the basics, because if they're alienating parents in either direction, well, parents are going to vote with their feet to another option. And then the public schools might respond by saying, okay, we're losing funding that follows the child. How about we focus on the basics and, and do some math and reading and get those proficiency numbers up before we, uh, before we start to focus on all these political things in the classroom. I think because Public schools in so many places uh, can just do whatever they want and teach however they want, even if it's politically biased and frustrates parents, they're going to continue to do so. And we have uh, about 27 studies on the topic that look at private school choice competition on what happens in the public schools, 25 of the 27 studies find statistically significant positive effects on at least academic outcomes. Mm-hmm. So we haven't seen uh, uh, much evidence. It would be a great study for a, a, a PhD student or someone, whoever has the data to look at it, to see what happens to the mission of public schools, or at least uh, the curriculum in the public schools in response to this competition. So that, that would be an interesting uh, study to look at. And yeah, that's, that's basically, yeah, my, my response to that.
0: One of the I remember when when right after the Juncan election, and you know, there was so much talk about this was really the parents pushing us, but the question was how much of it was because of school closures and COVID, and how much of it was because of the, you know, for lack of a better word, the CRT issues, the woke issues, the indoctrination issues. And you know, there was a debate over that, and I think there still is, and clearly it was a combination of both. So the question is if a lot of that was more the COVID closure issues, and assuming we are mostly beyond COVID, hopefully, um, at least in terms of school closures, do those issues go away? In other words, does that push towards school choices that parents being very upset with the public schools sort of go away? Or do you think the politicization, the CRT issues, you know, are prominent enough to make this, you know, still a popular issue amongst parents?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you look at our the Real Clear Opinion research polling, we still find A 72% support of school choice, which was eight percentage points higher than pre pandemic levels. In Texas, they just had polling in their uh, Republican primary. They found a nine percentage point surge in support of school choice on the primary ballot between 2018 and 2022. So we're still seeing this historically high levels of support of the funding following the child on a nationwide basis. And then within state polling as well, or even at, at the primary ballot, which in some ways is even better than a poll because it's the actual voters going up to the ballot box and and voting in, in one way or the other. And I think that you're right to the extent that it is uh, the issues of what's happening in the schools and how things are being taught. We're going to see this continuing because there's a push towards more transparency in the public schools. And to the extent that we have more transparency in public schools, we're going to have a, a section of the parent population that's going to be upset with whatever the curriculum is, whatever it is. And that's, that's kind of the beauty of this and why I'm so optimistic for uh, the prospects of school choice going forward is that the problem isn't, That it's this curriculum or that curriculum that's currently imposed in the public schools. The problem is that families are forced into a one size fits all government run school system that by definition isn't going to work for a large section of families because families disagree about how they want their kids raised. And that's OK. And so like. There is a lot of stuff at play here over the past two years, but it's really shined a spotlight on the problem with the system itself. These problems were always uh, around. COVID was just the spotlight on those problems. Right. So we had the problems with remote versus in-person. We had this curriculum or that curriculum. We had this COVID mitigation strategy or that one. And whatever one size fits all set of rules that's imposed, there's going to be a problem. Right. And the bottom up solutions, uh, the the best solution that doesn't come along with all these unintended consequences. I mean, just think about the top down solutions that we're seeing proposed right now. I mean, you have families showing up at school board meetings, which I think is great uh, to to try to participate in the democratic process. But at the end of the day, it's destined to fail. I mean, just look at what, what happens with so many parents now. They're getting labeled as domestic terrorists for showing up and about disagreements with the curriculum. And so the establishment doesn't want to listen to these parents because parents don't have true power in the public school system unless you have the funding following the child so that families can truly have uh, the ability to vote with their feet to provide bottom-up accountability. That's, how, that's the only true form of accountability that exists. I mean, and then also look at the proposed bans on certain curriculums. I mean, there's just so much uh, complications when it comes to implementation. Even just reading the laws, it's kind of uh, unclear what exactly could or could not be permissible. And then at the end of the day, the teachers are probably just going to do what they want um, and if no one's enforcing the rules, you're still going to have this, 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 this misalignment between the values of the families and the, whatever is being taught in the classroom. And because these things are so complicated, uh, that the best way forward is to allow parents to choose. I mean, accuracy and media, uh, just did some undercover investigative journalism in states like Tennessee and, um, It was Idaho as well. Mm -hmm. And they caught tons of school administrators just saying, these are states that have banned critical race theory, but they're essentially just saying, well, we're just going to call it social emotional learning, or we're just going to say it's mental health. And we're just going to do what we were doing anyway, Um, which goes to show you that uh, top down policies are not true accountability. The only real form of accountability is bottom up accountability, allowing families to vote with their feet. And so I think more and more people are going to see that as as we as more of this plays out, whether it's from the undercover journalism or from just day to day experiences with your kid coming home with what you would call critical race theory, but what the teacher decided to call uh, something else. And and, and, and and I just want to be clear. I I don't think that the teachers teaching certain things have bad intentions. I I think they probably think they're doing a good thing in a lot of cases. Uh, The problem is that the teacher is not the parent. The parent's the parent, and they should have the decision about uh, they should be the primary decision makers in their kids' education and, and how their kids are raised.
0: And that's really kind of the fundamental debate of this whole culture war as it relates to education, which is who's responsible for the children, should it be at the end of the day, the parents or at the end of the day, the teachers. But since you brought up the teachers, you know, are they, do they, do, I don't, I think I agree with you. I think most of them don't think they're doing the wrong thing when they put in these. The problem is, especially in the public school world. These teachers have all, all of them have gone through the ed schools. The ed schools have been teaching this ideology for many, many decades now. So they are all indoctrinated in these ideologies. And so one of the questions that people say, well, you know, we can have school choice. That's all great. But if every teacher, obviously homeschool might be different, but if every teacher has been indoctrinated in these ideologies in the graduate education schools, what does even school choice really do for us? because you can't avoid those ideologies. So, you know, we got to build new ed schools. I mean, what's your sort of response to that?
1: Yeah, again, it's not a perfect solution, but it's the best one that we have. And even if the same people are going through the same education schools, they may be less likely to teach through that lens or in a less biased way, if they understand that they have to listen to the needs of, of the individual parents, and if they might not want to alienate the parents as, as much if they know that the families can vote with their feet. Again, that's not a perfect solution. Another solution could be to couple school choice with alternative uh, certification processes for, for teachers right. in the public school system. And a lot of states already have this, uh, but the basic idea is that you don't won't have to come from an education school program uh, and go through this kind of um Uh, indoctrination in the the higher education programs in order to be a teacher Um, so you can open up the supply of labor uh, uh, that with these alternative certification processes so it doesn't have to be one thing or the other but again like if you have alternative certification processes and you don't have school choice that's when it becomes a problem where it might be a step in the right direction but without that bottom-up accountability who's Who's to say that the principals gonna or, or or the people in the system, the district, are going to hire the 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 teachers that are doing a good job? Um, so at the end of the day, all of these other top-down mechanisms are just band-aids. To you've got
0: to break the root of the problem. You got the root of the problem. You got to break the monopoly. Yep. Of the public school. So, all right, last two questions. You had mentioned, uh, I think, in in your opening remarks, charter schools. We didn't really talk about that. Clearly, that's part of the solution. That's part of the choice. I, I don't know if there are people that say this, but there might be that say, if we have robust charter schools, then we don't need necessarily, you know, to fund the students because you do have choice. You know, How do you sort of respond to that?
1: Charter schools are more likely to be subject to government control and regulation. They are, after all, still defined in every state that I've seen as, quote unquote, public schools, even though they can be privately managed. But you have uh, various mechanisms for um, controlling the entry of certain types of charter schools. We're seeing this play out with the federal charter school program. Uh, Wall Street Journal just wrote about this, their editorial board the other day, where the Biden administration is proposing that in order to uh, be eligible for this funding, you have to do certain things, uh, you have to have a certain type of mission um, and just uh, to, uh, to serve ter- certain types of students, and they also uh, require um, that there's sufficient demand for the charter schools, and they define that the administration defines that as um, having having uh, not having or having over enrollment in the traditional public schools. Which has nothing to do with the demand for the charter schools and whether families actually want it or want it or not. It's a way to further protect the monopoly schools by saying that well, if they're they're losing enrollment already, you can't provide more competition, which is just totally ridiculous. It's a way to cement the status quo. Uh, Last question, yeah, but just I got to add on to that that I think charter schools are a step in the right direction. At least you're not residentially assigned to them. At least it gives families more options, but the better solution again is the education savings account. The way to tr- truly empower parents and to fund students as opposed to systems is to literally give the funding to a family uh, through the education savings account mechanism. And so then they, they won't have to either choose charter school versus nearby government run school. They could pick charter school if they want, but they could also pick private school, micro school. Home home based learning options to provide full uh, flexibility on the part of the parent, which will provide the most bottom up accountability. It's the it's the best solution we have.
0: Right, gotcha. All right, last question. Any advice to parents that are frustrated with their public schools? How whether they you know how to get involved, how to push these issues? You know what what role can parents play in this yeah. movement?
1: I would go to the Education Freedom Pledge uh, to to mobilize with other parents in your states around these bills to fund students as opposed to systems. And the way to do that is educationfreedompledge.com, or for short, you can just do edfreedompledge.com. And then you can get updates about uh, bills to to coalesce around in your state. Then also uh, just banding together with other parents is how you're really going to get things done, I mean, it it feels good to, to think that you could do everything on your own, but at the same time, in order to become a new special interest group, in order to change policy, you have to have a lot of people on your side, singing the same tune, pushing for the same proposals. And the best way to do that, I would say is to go onto social media, create groups, create groups in your local communities, and push back uh, towards solutions that, that work for your kids. You can also push back at school board meetings, but like I said before, uh, although it can get a lot of views in the media and can create a lot of discussion, uh, if the school board doesn't want to listen to you and if the teacher doesn't want to listen to the school board, that's not the best solution going forward. It could help, uh, of course. But but uh, that energy would be better well spent pushing for school choice policies. And again, you can uh, uh, get updates on on those those policies in your area at educationfreedompledge.com.
0: Perfect. Terrific advice. Corey, thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we hope you enjoyed that episode and that conversation with cory deangelis talking about educational choice school choice funding students and not government schools and breaking the monopoly of the teachers unions uh we will be back with a new episode soon but two announcements while i have your attention i hope i do very excited to announce we're, we're recording this podcast on a monday on wednesday march 30th bethie and i are doing a live event in reston virginia live taping of this show uh, we are interviewing two terrific guests, former Wisconsin governor, Scott Walker, who is now president of Young America's Foundation and former Wall Street Journal reporter and parent activist extraordinaire and a, and a friend of mine, Asra Nomani. So that's a live event uh, sponsored by Ricochet and sponsored by uh, the National Journalism Center. Uh, and you can find out more about that and join us if you're interested at uh, ricochet.com slash event. So we would love to see you there and I'd love to meet you in person. And in addition to that, um, if you do attend, we have a special code where you can take half off your annual Ricochet membership. Uh, And for those of you that attend, 50% off your annual membership, go to ricochet.com slash special. And the coupon code is NJC. So again, thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, we'd appreciate it if you would share it, if you would give us a good review, a five-star review on wherever you like to listen to your podcasts and tell your friends. And we will see you soon on another episode of Take Back Our Schools. Ricochet. Join the conversation.